Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Our guest today is Albert Dweck, the founder and CEO of Duke Properties and Artifacts Brokerage. Albert, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate this. Thanks, John. Of course. Um, so before we get into business, could you tell us a little background on where you're from and how you got into commercial real estate? Yeah, well, I'm from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, born and raised there. Um, right, right around Brooklyn College in that area, Middlewood, Flatbush, like that. Um, I got into commercial real estate. Actually, you know, my intention was to um, do residential real estate. You know, I love real estate, and I and I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do? What's the where is my focus going to be? And I said, you know, I like helping people. I like providing housing. And the people that I knew and lived around, no one was really doing residential real estate. And I said, you know, I want to own the bills that people have to pay. I want to help people. And I, I don't want to worry about people's, you know, businesses going out of business and stuff. So I said, you know, let me start buying houses. So for those of you who, you know, try to imagine what it's like today, when I started in my real estate career was the late 90s, early 2000s. And I was looking around Brooklyn to buy houses. And I was bidding on houses that I could have a renter in. So I was bidding like a seven cap. And rates were at seven. Right. So I couldn't make any numbers work. I should have bought them all, uh, but didn't. But at the time, it doesn't at make sense. At the time, and I was looking for yield. I was like, why, why would I put my money to work without having to get yield? And I wasn't buying all cash, you know. Right. So um, that was a time when rates were like that, six, seven percent. And mm. you, couldn't make, you couldn't make a cash flow because cap rates were there. I should have bought everything. Uh, I think that someone told Warren Buffett once, I said, you know, it was like 10 years ago, you could have bought the whole Brooklyn for $4 billion. <laughs> you should have bought the whole Brooklyn. Right. So I should have done that too. Uh, so that's how I got into residential real estate. And then uh, I graduated from uh, houses um, to buildings pretty quickly. Um, but that's how I started. Awesome. Great. And what would you do in that kind of midpoint between college and um, real estate and residential real estate? Yeah, so um, after college, I graduated college early, um, and I went to NYU, and then uh, I had I was in like the wholesale business where I was doing um, traveling and selling um, uh, stuff that we mm. made in China, uh, all over the world, really, and uh, uh, selling that. Uh, and then I had a cookie business also, which mm. didn't, which uh, crumbled actually, but. Uh, I did that. I did some food, uh, food stuff too, and uh, at some point, I just came to a point where I'm like, you know what? I, I, I'm, I, I sort of figured out how to do business, and uh, it was time to invest again for myself. Uh, and I thought about what I really wanted to do, and real estate was uh, something that I was interested in. So then, what I did was I, I took all these classes, and I read all these books and courses, and I became a licensed real estate agent. And I was thinking you know, what part of real estate do I want to be involved in and, you know, really was residential for me. Got it. And that's my primary focus till today, uh, residential real estate. I do have mixed-use properties mm -hmm. and stuff, but, you know, always when the stores come along with the uh, with the apartments. So. Right, got it. Okay. Um, for your first deal, the first ever piece of real estate that you've ever acquired, how did you kind of put that deal together? At the time, um, as I told you, I was looking for houses to buy mm. really where i could rent them mm. you know 
and I, I couldn't make the numbers work in Brooklyn, so I expanded my radius to New Jersey. And at that time, I know it's hard for me to say this or even for you to believe it, but we looked in the newspaper for mm -hmm. listings, right? Well, that's where you okay. looked. Like you would look in the Wall Street Journal and whatever local papers, that's where things were listed. You know, right. you would actually read the New York Times or the Journal or whatever paper. Right. So at the time was, uh, I think, the Asbury Park Press. Mm. And there was a lady advertising basically three houses for sale that she owned. Uh, and she couldn't find a, a buyer because it was really something that someone was like an investor had to buy. It was three houses on one lot. Um, so that's how I bought my first. I mean, I, I saw the, the ad in the paper. Obviously, she's putting an ad by herself for sale by owner. And uh, I contacted her and I had a good rapport. And uh, funny story was that during the inspection of the property, I actually fell through the ceiling. Not fell, but made a hole through the ceiling oh, of the wow. property. Okay. Because I was walking in the roof. Okay. And then I didn't step on the rafter and then I went through that. Wow. I had to buy bought the building and I fixed it, but um ended up um doing well on that property and, and basically doubled my money in nine months. And I said, Oh, this is great, except can I do it bigger? You mm. know. Uh so I real I immediately was looking to scale. Um but you know, that's how I, you know, that's how I started. Got it. Okay. First, yeah. And at what point did you kind of start developing your, like your strategy for how you go about acquiring uh, and renovating and selling? So all, all along the way, um, you know, you're developing, as I uh, got better at it, there's always have to be something where, and I learned this from my early days in business, it's like, you, it's a competitive environment, right? So you have to be better at something that someone does in execution, uh, so you can do speed, speed, complexity, and design. Those are the three ways, really, you have competitive advantages. You could be the, f the, the fastest guy in the market, you could have really complex strategy, or you could have like a great design. Um, and uh, usually you, you could get two out of three of those three things. Um, and I was thinking about how would I differentiate myself um, I was going to be a very hands-on manager guy uh, doing them. And what we started doing was um, in New Jersey doing that and this, figuring out really what was too big for the small investor to handle and then too small for the big investor. And that was the kind of sweet spot that we were in, like you call them middle market properties or uh, stuff like that. So we started buying that. That's how I did. And then... Um, uh, grew from there. Uh, and, and then we became good at certain aspects of that, like where could I find value, uh, things like that. And then, you know, more recently, uh, uh, we compete in a lot of different ways, obviously, knowing the laws. Uh, we got involved in New York about a dozen years ago in New York City, got really good at knowing how to navigate a very, very complex system mm. there. And then we do a lot with co-living today and... Um, um, and then I got back in the house business in New Jersey. We bought we bought a lot of houses in the after the financial crisis um, in New Jersey, uh, and then fixed them and renovated them and rented them, and then now sold a lot of them because they all went up in value. Um, and then created a management business that was uh, uh, that we in service of ourselves, but at the time uh, we needed to do because we had a lot of units. Uh, and then today it's like uh, you know realizing that we have tenants. Residents, really, we don't. We, we try. The language is important. Residents that we 
work to produce communities where they're uh, happy and can live uh, safe and successful and healthy lives. Uh, and we, we, we try to provide that with, our, with what we're doing. Mm. Uh, and then what we realize is in New York City and in a lot of the country, there's a crisis of affordability, there's not enough housing. So we realize that people are living together to afford the rent, and we're trying to lean into that and give them what they need to do that. So that's Got really what, what we do a lot of. Awesome. Okay. And could you give us an overview of, of uh, the different sub-markets that you have properties in and what kind of emerging market that yeah, you're yeah. looking so to we get call, into? We, we're, we buy property of what we call the emerging markets of New York City. So we look for um, essentially New York City is, you know, the five boroughs. Uh, and there's only there's eight and a half million people and there's only so much land, right? Uh, and basically, New York City also has about three million households. And they're not making any more of New York City, right? So if you want to live in New York City, like I think there was a stat I read, half of all the kids who graduate college in the United States want to live in New York City. Right. That's a lot of people, Yeah. right? And then you say, okay, well, you know, where are they going to live? And then, you know, what's they want to live in a cool neighborhood. And then what happened was about 10 years ago, um, crime went down across the country in New York City. And these areas that I was growing up that when I was a kid that were not safe or less safe uh, became more safe. Mm. And then more people came to New York to want to live here mm -hmm. as that happened. And then people needed housing. So they just, so, and New York City fortunately has uh, an inexpensive subway system and mass transit that's very, um, uh, easy to get around and it's easy to get to say Midtown if you have working there or down, whatever in Manhattan and you know you can be in Brooklyn and then Brooklyn itself became a destination and then the areas that were closest to the city became more expensive and then so on so you know if we went further west to a point where let's say you know someone's commuting 45 minutes as a maximum to Manhattan that's really sort of how we went out on the subway mm. line. So, uh, and then, and then also when you're in those areas, like, oh, there's a cool coffee shop, there's a cool restaurant that people would go to from around other neighborhoods, and you're like, oh, wow, that's cool. A, a French restaurant coming from the city, opening here. Oh, oh, a club, a thing. and then people want to just go in those neighborhoods to live with all to live all together, mm. right? So. People, so the one you had was people coming from out of town, um, uh, out of New York City for work assignments or because they wanted to make it in New York. And then they'd have to afford to live together. So if they're living, you know, three people living together in Brooklyn and they're paying $3,000, it's cheaper than living in right. Manhattan right. in a one bedroom, right, for right. 5000 So that's what happened. Those areas then became destinations themselves. Mm. You know, Bushwick for, I mean, uh, Ridgewood, Queens, uh, as an example, was just voted by Time Out magazine as the fourth hottest neighborhood in the world. Wow. And we have a lot of concentration of buildings there. Awesome. Because it was along the subway right. line and, you know, so that was something that we saw coming and also takes uh, patience, uh, perseverance, right. uh, resilience in those, in those neighborhoods. Got it. You know. Okay. And um, so using the strategy of identifying emerging markets, what, what emerging market right now are you seeing that you're going to, Pay more attention to in the next decade. You know, I think for us, it's 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 more about um, the type of 
way people are living as opposed to um, as opposed to where people are living. I think mm. I think New York City uh, continues to you know as it continues to infill and people looking for affordability and increased density. Um, it's more like uh, we like we feel very strongly about co living uh, in the future. You know people living together to afford the rent and making that a great experience. Uh, so we've been doing a lot with that right. uh, successfully. And so I think that continues to happen. And then the areas that were, you know, continuing to develop like Ridgewood, Bushwick will continue to develop and mm -hmm. further in further East. Uh, and then as those neighborhoods like East New York and stuff like that, those will eventually come around. Um, but, you know, Bed-Stuy we see continuing to grow and Harlem, East Harlem, Washington Heights, you know, the whole, and uh, definitely South Bronx and, and continuing to go as wherever the subway lines go. Got it. Um, and, and I think then you're looking for, you know, if improve, uh, if, and when transportation services improve, like if there's like a high speed rail line that comes from Philadelphia, that could be interesting, hmm. uh, to, for New York, but a lot of, everyone wants to kind of be in New York. So that's what we're working through. Uh, working with and continuing to find those areas where it makes sense. And I think there's a bunch of areas in um, Southern Brooklyn or whatever that, you know, where I grew up where, you know, it certainly makes sense for young people to live. Uh, you can get there. You know, it's not trendy right. yet, right. but it will be. So okay, soon. those right. areas. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, and could you also tell the audience about Artifacts Brokerage and how you kind of got inspired to start this and, where the idea came from. Yeah, sure. So um, I have a, a co-founder and I, we, we, we started the company. And the idea was, this was before uh, before COVID, I okay. would say, that, you know, small and medium-sized businesses need help finding office space. And really, you know, if someone's looking for less than 10,000 square feet, the big brokerages don't really care. Right. It doesn't make sense to work on them. And these guys, and uh, including me, you know, we're, we're looking for space. We're like, we're on our own. We're hunting our own space. And and it's like, you you have to spend all the time. No one really, I mean, it's not like someone's going to really care about you. Right. So we found that with our new model, you know, we, we can give these um, small and medium-sized businesses the attention they need. We know what they're looking for. Mm. We can find them great spaces. Uh, and we also use technology in a way to 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 find out who they are, what they need, uh, and help them really great give great spaces. So give them the attention they deserve, and helping small, medium-sized businesses find space when no one cared about them. And we had the kind of setup to do that. Uh, we do, and you know, obviously in the pandemic that became challenging. And now with you know half the half the offices are vacant, but I think that. Uh, as uh, people realize that there's no replacement for being in person, mm. and uh, as that now we're seeing a, a trend back towards uh, offices and mm. people needing offices, and you know certainly where people are wanting to be more flexible about that, rethinking their office space, they're coming to us and saying, right. "Hey, I had three thousand square feet here. What do you think?" And we're we're there for to help them do that. So that's okay. what that's how we started. Awesome. Okay, um, and. I want to know how um, how your investment strategy overall for Duke Properties. How did that change since you started? Yeah. How how has it evolved over time? So I you know I think first it was like 
um, I was less specific about my strategies okay. about a, a particular uh, business. I was looking for I was looking for upside in the rents for sure, where I could add value. Um, but then I got much more specific and specialized as I evolved. So like now we're looking for uh, where we could uh, add value mm. by using uh, co-living and our special design uh, aspects where we know how to unlock the value, whether it be in zoning or repositioning an asset, mm. uh, using our uh, contractors and architects and experts that we hire to really outcompete the market. So we'll deliver. So what happens with us is we'll deliver a product and there are no comps for it because, you know, there are, we're building something better or different than, right. than what's out there. And then banks or, you know, appraisers will come to us and say, oh, you know, there are no comps. I'm like, yeah, there are no comps because we're doing this. And like, oh, so that's what we're doing now. Uh, so we're always staying one step ahead of the market. I often tell people that if you haven't been in my building with me yesterday, you don't know what we're doing next. Got it. Okay. So we're always innovating on that and uh, we're excited about that. So so it became much more, uh, much more competitive, uh, much more specialized. And what I'm doing today is very... Uh, uh, we're looking to maximize uh, and, and create a great experience for uh, young professionals, really, and families in the housing space uh, by uh, giving them great amenities and great locations and community where mm -hmm. they didn't have community. And you know what very often happens is people move to New York City and they're like, oh, I don't know anybody. How do I find someone? Mm -hmm. And we help them do that. So. Uh, that's one of the ways we're being competitive also. So, um, you know, co-living and this whole prop tech thing was, uh, you know, we went through a lot with it as it as it emerged a mm. few years ago. And then we've, uh, we're working to sort through and stick with the guys that really know what they're doing. So that's what Got we it. do now. Okay. Yeah. And are there any creative value-add strategies that you're employing for rent-stabilized buildings? No. No. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, rent stabilized buildings are, you know, there's no, there's not a lot to do right. with those uh, these days. Uh, so, you know, I, my, uh, uh, my partner and friend, uh, uh, Stephen Ancona and I came up with a, with uh, an idea that we hope can help the politicians will take with us to uh, uh, help unlock some of the, um, the, the value in the, you know, rent stabilization mm -hmm. help improve affordability for everybody. The problem is that, you know, we have pretty draconian laws now. Right. Uh, New York State is, I think, the only one in the country that regulates vacant apartments, right. which is an incredible, yeah. incredible uh, stat. So uh, rent stabilization is tough. So we just try to survive through rent stabilization now. Um, and it's not good for anybody, but including the tenants. Right. Um, but it's something that... Uh, we're working to um, hopefully uh, figure out a solution for. That's right. a long-term solution, which, which is what we need. You know, uh, people need to be able to afford where to live, mm -hmm. and um, we want to provide that housing. Awesome. We want to also be able to improve the housing we have. Right. Um, and uh, with rent stabilization now, let's say if it's, um, I know there was a lot of complaints about that with the, like rents going up three percent. Let's say for the next round, but if inflation is greater than three percent. Then rents are essentially going down. Right. 
Does that make sense? The net, the net is going down. Right? Right, yeah. So you have to raise rents to meet inflation. If you're, Match inflation. If you're raising right. rents less than inflation, you're actually reducing right. the real rent. So people don't get that. Right. Uh, and then, you know, of course, our, you know, the insurance bills went up and every bill goes up. So you're like, oh, how does that work? Oh, I mm. don't know. You know, we're capped at 3%. Maybe they should cap all the bills we increase right. at 3%. That would be great. Right, definitely. So. Um, and <laughs> let's say somebody watching this right now is not really, is new to real estate. And they don't know the difference between a rent control building and a rent stabilized. Could you kind of explain that difference? Sure. Rent controlled uh, essentially got rolled into rent stabilized. Rent stabilized is about a million apartments in New York City. Rent stabilized, and then rent control is only about twenty thousand, mm -hmm. I think. Anyway, it's a, rent control was an older iteration of rent stabilization, um, and there's a little bit of different rules about that, but uh, similar rent increases mm. uh, on the both of them. Uh, I believe rent controlled. Uh, when they become vacant, they, they, there's an opportunity to get them uh, to be free market. But uh, rent stabilization, no. But rent control, generally, the numbers are much lower rents. Mm. Uh, for example, we have a couple of tenants that pay $200 a month in rent right. in the same building where there's people paying thousands of dollars in rent in the same apartment. So it's, uh, it's a very good situation for those people. And right. and that can be passed on from generation to generation for the people if they if they do follow the rules and live there. They, right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And let's say somebody watching this right now is 21, 22 years old, super excited about the business. They want to get into the business, start acquiring properties, raising capital. Um, how would you recommend for them to get their first deal together or get into the business overall? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to figure out which part of the business you want to be uh, in, whether it be an area or kind of uh, or strategy. It's important. You know, the real estate business is very big. You know, there's a, there's a million parts of it. There's industrial, there's brokerage, there's uh, land leasing, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, you want to figure out an area. I, I'm an advocate of figuring out really getting good at one thing mm. and uh, being an expert in that domain. And then, uh, or an area, you know, you can be uh, an expert in that. You can know every building owner in a whole neighborhood mm. and you could be the guy of the neighborhood. Right. Um, that's another idea. Um, so I say focus, specialize, learn, and then figure out what you're going to do that's different than anybody else did, faster than anyone else did, mm. or better, right? So those are your three uh, three things you got to figure out. How am I going to do this better than someone, faster, or nicer? Right. right. So. so it's important to get clear on your edge in the market before yes, you kind of... your competitive advantages. Right. You know? Uh, what are what 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 capabilities do you have, and then how are you going to use them to Your differentiate right. yourself? Right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I want to know what you look for in an ideal capital partner, an investor that you work with. So, in an ideal capital partner, we we look for someone who has usually invested before, right, and that understands that um, it's like a real living, breathing game, this thing. It's like, a, and it changes every day, right? Right. So someone who can understand that, you know, uh, things, uh, what do they say? Um, Sun Tzu, right? The famous Art of War. Uh, Art of War, he says, all plans only survive until first contact with the enemy. Right. Right. So it's a person that you could call up and say, listen, you know, this happened, this happened, this, this on the plus side, this happened, this on the negative side, this happened. This is the reality of the situation, you know, understanding that, um, that, you know, there's different kinds of investors, but, uh, you know, some of our bigger capital partners, those are the ones that, you know, we're, um, 
you know, you kind of want to have that understanding. Mm-hmm. And then for the, there's sometimes smaller investors, accredited or whatever, but, but uh, you know, those people, you know, mostly it has to be like, there's not liquidity in mm-hmm. that. And you want to, you know, have people that can afford to, to handle uh, changes. And Got it's it. long-term thinking. As you can see today, right. um, you know, if you're a long-term guy, it's uh, that's what real estate is, really. Right. What I learned, it's a long-term business. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and as far as when you vet um, general business partners, um, what's a telling sign that you shouldn't work with someone? Well, what I learned was, from my experience, it's a marriage, mm. you know, and um, you have to do a lot of due diligence. I think there's like a thing that says, Hire slowly, fire quickly. Fire quickly, yeah. Right, so you really should um, do your due diligence in checking people out. And what I learned was if I couldn't see something about a person, I probably have friends that could. Mm. So, you know, I should have, you know, and when I've made mistakes in the past, I should have spoken to my advisors and friends and said hey what do you think of this situation mm. what you know and and that's what i as i got older learned how to do better it's like when i have a problem now i bring it to the my the trusted advisors and i and i and i talk it out with them and i said you know this is what happened what do you think and they'll say well you know they'll give me a different perspective because mm. you could only i could only see what i do right you know and these guys see know me well and they could see what you know how they can help me do that. got it yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, and I want to know about your podcast. Ask the landlord. Yeah. Um, why'd you get this started, and what's kind of your goal with it? So after having, thank you for asking that. <laughs> um, after after having been in the real estate business for so long, one thing that you realize is that everyone in the world, everyone in the world, every person in the world on the planet, transacts for housing, right? Whether they're homeless or they're living in the Taj Mahal, and they have, you know, questions, and they may not be experts, right? So they have a question about where they're living, what they're going to do, what their next move is, and they're always calling. They want to get advice, so they call me. So I have friends and family and other developers that, and residents that call me and say, oh, Al, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. What do you think? I, yeah, I have this thing. My, lawyer, my, uh, my, my, my landlord did this. I did that. And I would get these phone calls, and, I, and I'm like, you know what? There's got to be a place for me to answer these questions. Right. Okay, so that that. And then what I also noticed was, don't you know that landlords are the worst people in the world? I mean, it's an easy question for you, right? Landlords are the worst. Common misconception. Right? Yeah. And why is that? And why is there a relationship where tenants and landlords, it's like two sides, it's like black and white. Right. You know, and I'm like, why is that? You know, I, I need my residents. My residents need me. Why does it have to be an adversarial relationship? We should be all working together. Mm. And I said, you know, I want to change. I want to transform. Not change. I want to transform the relationship between residents and and owners, landlords and tenants. Such bad words, even. And how do I do that? Well, I want to. I want to put myself out there and say, look, you have. I'm. I'm here to. I'm a landlord, and I'm here to help you. Right. You know. So. Uh, you know, we can call people can watch the podcast, which is Ask the Landlord. You know, it's on available on every platform there is. And we answer questions for about 15 minute segments and uh, people have questions about everything, you know, housing and, you know, we've had some guests and, you know, uh, but it's really cool. Right. So awesome. I, I'm happy to help affect change in that way. Um, so your goal is to kind of 
through helping people shift the dynamics between landlord and tenants yeah. and kind of improve it and make that's sure that they're both on the same team. That's right. Awesome. That's, that's great. Right. That's a noble cause. Can we all just get along, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, and how do you go about setting goals for yourself and for your companies? Yeah, so for myself, it's it's really, uh, it's first philosophical. Okay. It's like, um, you know, philosophy, I don't know if you know this, but I'm going to give you a little bit of philosophy. Philosophy primarily deals with two things. Uh, we're going to get to the second one, but I'll say the first one. The first one is how do you know what's real? And the second one is really what's the meaning of life? Like right. what's the... The why. Like why, yeah, like what's the good life? Right. So once you figure out what living a good life is for you, you're like, oh, I need this, I need that, you know. And then you say, well, you could have put numbers to it. And then, you know, then, you, then you're then you like, oh, okay, I, how many buildings do I have to manage to produce that income or how much, how much do I have to earn to do that? So it really comes from, you know, I want to live a good life, take care of myself, my wife, my kids mm. so that they can live a good life and really what we don't want to do is have and what's a good life for us is like unwanted we don't want to have unwanted compromises we don't want to be with unwanted relationships and right. stuff so we want to you know you want to do whatever you need to do to have enough so that you could live a good life and and then you know you can figure out how much that is you awesome. know yeah. um you know if your kids go to private school you live in new york city whatever you got to figure out there's a lot of things got to it. figure out so you start with the end in mind and you kind of yeah. work backwards. Yeah, you work backwards. Don't do that. And then and then so it's first it's your lifestyle. You know, it's like uh, ambition, mm -hmm. right? You say, okay, here's the lifestyle I want to live. Then you say, okay, well, what financial ambition do I have to have to live that? Right. And you know, when you're thinking about that, and then you do business, because the business is the thing you have to do to do the financial. Gotcha. So then when you think about the financial, it's like, well, and I, I I'm going to say this for you and I. It's on. It's it's in a way. It's interesting. You think about really what you're thinking about is, I have to think about planning for 90 years of life. In the olden days, when Social Security was invented, right. it was people only lived to 62, which is why it ran out at 62. Right. Now you have to figure out how to live for 30 years past retirement. Right. So that means you have to save whole new dynamic, a whole new thirty years that you didn't have to save before. Right. You're like, so you have to earn what you're doing today, right? To live today, then you say, well, when I can't work, how do I sustain myself? I, for 30 I have to years? live for thirty years, <laughs> and it's not that you can't work. It's like you you get to a point where you know the infirmities of old age happen to you at sixty. Start statistically. Mm. So you like, gotta figure out how to do that. And then you're like, okay, well, how do I design my business like that? How do I design my life like that? Right. And then unfortunately, the numbers are very big because, you know, you have to live, you have to eat, you have to put gas in the car, you know, you have food, transportation, housing, and healthcare. Those are the big ones. Right. So when you gotta and those you can figure out how much they cost. And then you gotta figure out how much it costs now and after taxes. Right. And how much you have to save for the future. Right. So that's Plus then, then you have to then you have to make a business that does that. Got it. It's okay. really hard. Awesome. Um, okay. And Albert, I want to know who are your kind of role models or people that kind of taught you the business when you initially started out? So, um, you know, my, my grandfather, uh, my mother's father was a role model of mine for sure. Um, he was running business and, uh, you know, I was, I used to, I got a lot of knowledge and wisdom from him. Mm. Uh, and, he was an advisor for me early on. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, family and friends that I, that I had that, uh, 
and I look at my uh, my uh, professors, some of them in, in school, mm. definitely I was, uh, you know, speaking to, and then there were some uh, investors that were uh, key strategic advisors for me at the time, and um, getting some great teachers along the way, um, and you know, having uh, doing some professional networks that I was in, that I am in, and was in, that where I could have friends that were very smart and accomplished. Not necessarily in my business, but that I could talk to uh, mm. and um, and learn from. And then there were other people in the real estate business that um, had more experience than I would, and that I could talk to and 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 um, tell about my problems and things. But uh, yeah, there weren't a lot of people around that were doing residential at the time. Right. And, uh, uh, but uh, so Got that's it. how I started. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and w what would you say makes a good leader or a good principal? So, you know, leadership, I, I know it gets, you're, you're asking me in a way that's like uh, trumping it up. But if I told you, if I asked you what to define leadership, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define it in a, in a certain way. Mm. Leadership is being able to assess a situation, right? And what's a situation? A situation is a cluster of threats, which are sources of harm and likelihood of their occurring, obligations, and opportunities. Obligations are duties you fulfill to continue to have an opportunity, mm. to make a new opportunity possible, or to avoid triggering a threat. An opportunity is a real, uh, some uh, like something real that you could use to fulfill your purposes, right. your ambition, right? So then, so a leader helps you assess the situation, like what are the threats, what are the opportunities, what are the obligations, and then being able to tell you how to deal with them. Mm. That's leadership. Got it. So taking a, a calculation of what exactly is going on and what's the best path forward. Right. You could be led by a kindergartner. Right. You know, you know, it's like, oh, how do I get to the bathroom? It's like, oh, you get to the bathroom by going there. Right. Got like, it. where are you? You're here. The bathroom's over there. You got to go there. Right. But don't, you know, don't fall on the blocks on so the way. It's decision-based. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that's, it's, it's not so, it's, on the one hand, it's very simple. On the other hand, it's like, oh, you know, I need someone to, when I, when you think about leadership now that you asked it, you're saying, who can I get that can help me look at the situation, understand mm. all the parts of it, and then help me deal with it. Mm. Right. And, uh, you know, so then there's knowledge. Knowledge is, uh, is, you know, the capacity, the superior capacity to think and act effectively, right, in a domain. So then you go, okay, well, people are good at this real estate thing. And I'm going to follow them. Like, I don't know about, I'm not good with retail. I don't right. do, I have a few stores, but I don't, you know, I'm not a retail guy. Like, I don't think that way. I right. think residential. Right. So, you know, I'm not the best guy to ask about retail. So finding those specific leaders in that. Right. right. That you could be domain, we call them domain specific knowledge. Okay. Right. So. Awesome. Okay, great. Um, and what do you do outside of work to kind of keep yourself centered and to prevent burnout? Right. Great. I, um, first of all, I spend a lot, of, I spend time with my family. I have, uh, three now older kids. One is married. Um, and, um, one is out of college, one is going to college and, uh, spend time with my wife. Um, I play a lot of tennis. I, I, I play tennis a couple times a week. I do the, I do a uh, workout, uh, three or four times a week on top of that. So I do that. Um, and I, you know, so that for me is tennis is social. Uh, these days I do a lot of Peloton so that I work out with, I work out, have groups like that I work out with, uh, 
Um, so those things, you know, uh, I meditate every day. Um, Great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I get involved in my community. Like, uh, I do a lot of community work also. So, that's awesome. That's great. And what's your what's your primary driving factor nowadays? What keeps you kind of hungry and sharp? Just you know, still living a good life. You know, I know that I have to do that, and uh, taking care of my family. Really, awesome. those are the things that that I'm working for. I mean, I you know, I I I, I have to work. I I you know, I don't have enough, and uh, uh, I'm still I'm still after you know making sure that I can live a good life. So awesome. I'm doing that. Great. Yeah. And Albert, I have my final question to wrap sure. this up. What advice would you give to your 23-year-old self? To my 23-year-old self, I would say um, try to think about the long term. You know, I was more concerned, I think, with the short term. Um, I would think about thinking longer horizons of time. Mm. Um if I didn't know something, I would be more try to be more humble about what I didn't know. That at that at that age, like I get more advice, get more knowledge. Uh, you know, save more, uh, take less debt. Those things. Awesome, great, yeah. Albert. Thanks so much for doing this. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. And to the audience, please go ahead and check out Albert's podcast. Um, Ask the landlord. It's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'll put all the links in the description below.